Hello, and thank you for listening to this 2022 PUSH Festival Industry Series panel discussion. We acknowledge that PUSH unfolds each year on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. We recognize their sovereignty as well as the privilege we have of holding our festival on these lands. We hope this conversation brings you refreshing perspectives and inspiring ideas. So first, I just want to welcome you all here. Thank you for joining uh, on this panel and then start off with acknowledging that uh, I'm sure as you are, we're all in different places, as people who are watching this can tell, we're on Zoom, which happens over the internet which is a physical thing that crosses many lands and many territories that uh, have a rich history. Myself, uh, I'm beaming in from the uh, traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. And, uh, you know, I remind myself every day that this is land that was not freely given, and as well as, you know, the pipes that cross this nation and all of the world that there's a rich history of colonialization and rich <laughs> there is a history of colonialization and things uh, that happened throughout that history uh maybe to start off i'll get all of you to just kind of say where you are and who you are and maybe a bit about a uh, teeny bit about we can get into it more about uh, your multilingual work and maybe a project that you're working on i will hand it off to Carmela, and then after you're done, you can hand it off to someone else. Thanks, Pedro. Hi, I'm Carmela Sison. I am located on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations as well, um, colonially known as Vancouver. I immigrated here when I was seven years old from the Philippines. Um, I'm an actor, translator, and um, theater artist worker. Um, I'm currently still it feels like it's still working on a Tagalog translation of A Taste of Empire by Giovanni C started in 2019 and have been working on it for 20 years um so yes that's where I'm at I'm gonna hand it over to Howard thank you uh, my name is Howard Dye also located on the I'll see the territories belonging to the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations, and more specifically, uh, the Kekite First Nations as well, uh, colonially known as New Westminster currently. And uh, I'm Taiwanese. I was born in Canada, but I uh, grew up in Taiwan and came back uh, about um, oh, 11 years ago. Um, and I'm currently... oh. I'm an actor and theater artist and currently writing uh, my first full-length play called Pineapple Bun, Bolo Mian Bao, uh, which, uh, yeah, uh, I just will go a bit into it later on, but it kind of uh, explores the kind of diasporic guilt um, through language and through uh, the idea of nostalgia. And I'll pass it on to Mayumi. Hello, everybody. Thanks, Howard. Um, my name is Mayumi Yoshida, and I go by she, her. I'm also tuning in from uh, the unceded territory of Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I am very honored, and uh, I feel very um, privileged to call this land home. I'm originally from Tokyo, Japan. I had an international childhood where I lived in Washington DC for three years and then Brussels for three years and then in Japan majority of my life. And then I moved here 
uh, most of my family is staying still in Japan and um, I came here solo to pursue my career in acting. Uh, and now, um, originally I did a lot of theater back in Tokyo, but now here I think I'm primarily doing more film and TV and um, very lucky to sometimes sink my teeth into theater as well and be part of their theater community. Uh, I was very lucky to hold a double speak with Pedro and um, Derek last year. <laughs> no, two years, I guess. It's 2022 now, so two years ago uh, over Zoom for a play called Red Demon by Hideki Noda, which is translated into English and Japanese, originally in Japanese, but the play itself is multilingual and it explores the theme about identity and othering and um, how different languages and miscommunications, but also how we can connect even though language barriers exist. So I'm very in tune with um, those themes that revolve around language and identity and I'm very honored to be here. Uh, I would like to hand it off to, I actually, this is my first time meeting uh, Laurence, I would love to hand it up to Laurence. Hi, uh, my name is Laurence. Uh, I'm um, a theater artist. I'm located in the uh, on the unceded ter territory, Mohawk territory of Gayengahaga, known as Montreal. Um, and uh, with uh, NIAPT, Nancy Saunders, that is here today as well, uh, we uh, we are part of a collective called the Collective Alapi who created a sound documentary and a play based on the sound documentary. And we're presenting these, this piece at the push this year. And the piece is actually in three languages, uh, Inuktitut, French and English. It was co-created uh, by uh, Inuit and non-Inuit collaborators from Northern Quebec, uh, Nunavik, and different communities up there. A bunch of people who actually uh, spend their lives kind of between the North and the South. And, uh, and yeah, I will, uh, I will pass it on to Nia. Um, hi everyone. I'm uh, Nancy Saunders. Um, I go by Niap as my artist name and I am originally from Northern Quebec, Kujuak. And I've been living here for uh, in Montreal for 10, I think 13 years now. And I'm super happy to be here with you guys. I um, Alapi is really something very close to my heart and um, I'm glad to, to share with you guys. Awesome, thank you everyone for, uh, did anyone get a chance to uh, I got ignored. <laughs> I'm sorry, Pedro. <laughs> I was supposed to pass it on to someone, but I didn't do that. I'm sorry. It's all good. Hi, everyone. My name is Johnny Wu. Um, I'm a Taiwanese Canadian interdiscipline, interdisciplinary artist. Um, I work in both theater and film and TV. And um, I'm currently working on a beautiful project that started in 2019. Um, it's a co-collaborative device performance with a company in Taiwan, and it's called Hymn of the Weaver Birds. Um, it features currently five queer Asian male artists, but we're going to have a sixth one come in soon. But um, it's an exploration of the idea of femininity through 
the uh, Asian concept of the yin yang. And just looking through femininity from the eyes of five Asian queer men. And I'm on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Youth First Nation. Now, thank you, everyone, for those introductions. Uh, sorry for ignoring you a little bit there, Johnny. Uh, it was not intentional. I think what that shows is I want to take this incredible moment to acknowledge that there's just so many multilingual artists right now on this panel. Um, something that I think is pretty incredible to have a, quite the range of languages and, and representation in theater that's being created and explored within uh, the borders of this country and across oceans and the collaboration that's happening uh, between cultures for that. And uh, it brings a little tear to my eyes just to see that and, and have that happening. I want to acknowledge that this is a moderated talk uh, and that that is a very low term moderated talk which brings a lot of uh preconceived notions of you know control or that i'm the one kind of you know guiding the ship and i want to just throw that out right now that yes i'm here kind of you know poking and prodding and leading us down the road but i want you to know that the rules of the moderation or of the of the panel are that you're here to speak freely speak freely about your projects uh good or bad about working multilingually uh within this nation ab abroad all those things you can move freely. I know we're trapped in these boxes of Zoom, uh, but I know some of you are on laptops or on phones. And if you need to move or stretch your legs, I might have to hold my child at times, depending if if uh, my partner needs a break and, and that's okay. You ask for what you need and, and do what you need for this panel. Uh, it's not that formal. We're humans and uh, we need to allow room for that in, in all our discussions and our creation and all of that. And that just includes and feeds who we are as artists. Also, I want you to ask questions of each other. The fact that we have all these multilingual artists here is an opportunity that doesn't happen often to talk about translation, to talk about the work we do and what it's like to create in across cultures. Um, and we don't really get to, you know, rub elbows about that too much. Uh, you know, often we work in our silos of, you know, the artists and the cultures that you were raised in or and stuff like that, or your traditional theater cultures and all that stuff. And so please, if, if, if a question sparks of a project, if you're like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Like, how did you tackle that? Or all those things, please ask that question of each other. Um, yeah, it's, I'm not the only one here to asking questions uh, as the moderator, but I'll, I'll hopefully, you know, pick up the slack if we're ever just having that you know, seven minute lull conversation. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so I think uh, with all of that said, um, I want to start off with uh, a quick question to Carmela. <laughs> Yellow. Um, which I think might apply to a lot of other uh, folks here who are working. Um, and I think this was a big question that kind of, as you were speaking and you were talking about, it feels like 20 years working on this project. Um, and uh, I guess I didn't really fully introduce myself. I'm the artistic director of Rice and Beans Theatre. And your project in ours has a history because our company did a Cantonese translation of A Taste of Empire. And now you're doing the Tagalog translation. Then I know we have talked before and that for all of you to think about as Carmela answers this, because I think I'm going to turn this out to all of you, about the difficulties of creating in a language where speakers and fluent proficient speakers are limited and you have access to people who can 
actually truly give you an in-depth um, working of the work you're working on. Carmela, can you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, uh, sorry, that was so like, absolutely. Um, but it's been, number one, it, it, um, it was so it was such an honor when Giovanni approached me to do the project and it was very much, very intimidating at first. Um, but he was there to really support me. And, you know, the first thing, the way he approached me was like, let's, let's apply for the Tadasak re uh, translation residency so that you have that support right away. Cause it was my first foray into translating. And then, you know, once we got there, it was such a wonderful experience and yes, there were other translators there, but I was the first Tagalog translator to be there. So it was really just me figuring things out and then like kind of asking questions to the other translators, but their process is obviously very different. Their languages are so different, especially with Tagalog. It's such a colonized language that it's so much about culture, so much about the way the language has evolved in the in the you know past few centuries. So um, you know, it really it really was a struggle for me because it, it felt like every word I had to Google translate because I was like, is this even the right word? I was second guessing every every time I I would work, even on just one sentence. And then for me, <clears throat> what really what really made the process more more fun and more accessible was when I started working with Nina Liakino, who is literally like the only the only artist I can think of right away like offhand that could work with me on this on this project you know it's um especially because of you know uh, it's it's such a it's such a big question because Filipinos again being colonized um especially for immigrants having a lot of uh language shame it's I don't know very many artists my age who can speak Tagalog fluently and so it's it's such a it's been such a huge journey in in number one, reclaiming my own, my own skills, because I also was that kid who was like, I don't want to speak Tagalog anymore as a kid. So it's a bit of that, a very emotional journey into that. And then, um, yeah, like really having Nina open it up to what the language has evolved to now, that it's not this like archaic, the archaic Tagalog that it's, that that's like, um, I call it deep Tagalog where it's like almost people don't understand if people wouldn't understand if I had translated it fully in that Tagalog Tagalog. So there's a lot of like Taglish, which is Tagalog English in, in the current iteration of it. So yeah, it's, it's even now, right? Like in all my grants, I, um, I justified working with Nina who's in Toronto and Giovanni who's currently in Calgary because they're like, there is no, there are no other artists I can work with. They're literally the only two that can lay claim to knowing the language. Or sorry, Nina is the person who can really um, uh, help me with the, with the project. Like, yeah, so. Uh, and others? I know maybe for yours, we reached out to artists in Japan to come in to read for us. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, and one of the things I... I 
what I enjoyed about that was how um, the people, I can echo Carmela that uh, there is, and maybe we just haven't met those people, or I just haven't met those people that can speak both languages fluently who are actors or who are creators. Um, which if anybody is watching, please contact me. <laughs> Same, if any, any Tagalog speakers are out there. Yeah, it's so exciting when you meet and it's like, oh, like it's that Spider-Man meme. Like you're like, oh, <laughs> like, it's so exciting. Um, but one of the things that I enjoyed with the, what we did with Double Seek Speak is that um, I knew these actors in Japan who I've done theater back in the days with them and uh, their interpretation of the script versus the Canadian POV of the script was that um, it's not actually language language translation, but like interpretation translation was different, I think. And I think that was something that I wanted to explore to see like, what is that? What is it that, um, what are parts that overlap and we understand, or what are humors that don't translate to each other because we come from different lands. Even if we were, the translation is the same, somehow some parts are a lot more hilarious or lighthearted in Japanese, but when you translate it into English, it feels a little more heavier. And that was something that I loved discovering because we, we were, uh, not only it was different languages, but different cultures, different backgrounds, and even how you, humor is different in different countries and different regions even. So uh, that was also a fun part to discover through that um, inter, in, intercultural uh, exploration, I guess. Yeah, I do have to say, as I was like the English uh, person on that read, it was very interesting to be, because uh, I played the Red Demon who spoke English and then the other, people spoke Japanese it was very interesting to like be immersed in an ensemble of Japanese speakers and then having to figure out the timing of the of the English language within that script so it was, mm. it was quite quite a thing or how like timing works just a bit differently uh, so, an acting um, style too it's just mm -hmm. different yeah for the Lappy folks I guess I, I asked the same question uh, and also just how integrating three languages and that interaction between the three works in the piece so basically the, the sound documentary, um, so the sound documentary is like a character in the play. It actually plays uh, from the radio that basically on, on the set, there's a facade of a house uh, where these two women live their lives and there's a radio in the house and you can hear the sound documentary coming out of there as if it was just playing in their, in their house. And so in the documentary itself, uh, there is the presence of an octetut French and English because we, uh, we just let the people in the documentary speak the language that they wanted to speak. And, um, and then there was some translation done afterwards. So everything in the play is translated so that uh, both Francophones and Anglophones can understand everything. Um, and we, we took for granted that usually people who speak in Octetut also speak French or English. So basically all of these people can come to the play and understand everything that is happening. And what happens is that the facade of the house is also kind of a giant screen where subtitles appear. So when something is in French, it's translated into English. When something is in English, it's translated into French. And then when something is in Inuktitut, it's translated in, into both. So it's 
that the languages become part of the design, which is something that we had a, a lot of fun with, and they don't always appear in the same way. And we, we, we played with that. And um, for us, it was extremely important because we wanted the show to be as inclusive as possible for the audience. And we wanted to be able to go to, uh, to indigenous community centers and say, guys, come and see the show. We think you would enjoy it and you will understand things because most of Indigenous and most of Inuit people in Quebec speak English. So uh, even though we created it in a, in a French-speaking theater, it was really important for us to do that. And when it comes to Inuktitut, um, um, we, uh, we at, at, you know, at time, of course, we hear it because the two performers on stage uh, almost only speak Inuktitut together. And we also see it because at points, uh, the written language appears also projected on the house. So it's such a, a beautiful language to see written that, uh, you know, personally, it was actually my creating the show was my first real encounter with Inuktitut. And it's really a language that I fell in love with and that I, I tried learning, but it's quite hard. Uh, but I won't give up. Um, so, yeah, maybe, Nancy, you want to speak about that? Hi. So, um... In this piece, there's a lot, I mean, okay, so I've been living in Montreal for like 13 years, something like that. And growing up, I grew up in Kujuak, but I had moved, our family had moved when I was 12 and um, kind of we moved around, I, I moved around a lot and um, ended up going back home uh, at 18. And that's when I realized I had completely lost uh, my language, which is kind of odd because it was just, you know, from 12 to 18, it's not a lot, it's not not many years, but to have lost my mother tongue was a bit, you know, uh, uh, difficult, uh, mostly that, you know, my grandmother spoke only in Uptitut and a lot of my family members were very harsh with me um, about it. So, this piece, and I mean, since I was eight, since I'm 18, I've been trying to reclaim the language and, you know, learn as much as I can and speak what I'm able. And so throughout this theater piece, when we had things that we had to translate, I would constantly be on the phone with my aunt and my mom and my uncles. And I mean, to see, do we say this? Is it is this how we say it? Because Inuktitut is, is such a... Uh, it's a beautiful language, but it's very uh, complex. There's uh, very specific words for specific things. As, and so I, I, you know, to put aside food for someone, for example, um, it depends if you're going to bring the person the food, if the person's going to come and get the food, or if you're going to travel a long distance, let's say from, uh, you know, from one community to another to bring the food, the word is different. So in this in in Alapi, there's a scene where I say, "Oh, I'll put some food aside for this person. You can bring it to him later." But I had to call, you know, a lot of my family members to say, "What's this? What's the word that I need to use for this specific thing that's happening? You know, this specific action." So through through Alapi, I was able to learn different dialects, learn words that I. That I didn't have in my in my vocabulary, which was really really fun, and um, I don't know, like just regain 
it was an opportunity for me for learning, that's for sure. And and for, you know, Olivia, who's part of the, the theater piece who doesn't speak in it to who lost it because she grew up most of her life here. She speaks only in it on stage. And since um, she's been, you know, trying uh, very hard and, and doing very well with um, applying in it where she can. So this, um, and, and, and I mean, this speaks to like everything that I do since I was 18, like all of my, because um, I'm a, mid, a multidisciplinary artist, I do like visual art, painting, drawing, acting. And so throughout my artistic career, I've been trying to learn uh, things uh, that weren't taught to me because of, you know, Brazilian circumstances. So yeah, it, it was, um, it was a beautiful thing. And to have like people in 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 the audience who don't understand Inuktitut and who are forced to kind of read through it or who are forced to be in like comment je pourrais dire je sais pas comment expliquer ça là comme d'être isolé eux-mêmes comme comme serait n'importe quel Inuit dans n'importe quelle situation sociale dans le fond what I think what Nancy wants to say is that it's it's interesting because uh, we we play a lot with that in Alapi. We we play with the rever reversal of force and dynamics. So usually the we would make everything very easy for the audience to understand. In Alapi, we we don't do that. You know, we make it a little harder. So people speak a different language on stage that nobody understands in the audience, and they have to pay attention and to engage. The same way that a, an Inuit who would arrive in Montreal, they, they would need to put a lot of effort in to try to try to understand without any points of reference. And we try to recreate that, but for the audience to feel to feel like they are the foreigners. So yeah, to feel like they're the, the minority of the of the situation. And it's something that they don't really, you know, Quebecois in Quebec, they don't get to experience that very often unless I mean unless they're travelers, but uh for the you know, everyday thing. They, they don't really live that. And I don't think they expect it when they go to the to the show. And it's really nice to to see that it's kind of unsettling at first. And they're like, what's going on? Everybody's speaking only in it. Oh, I have to read. Okay, I have to make an effort. I have to pay attention, you know. And it's nice because there's some things on stage that we say in Inuktitut, but they don't they don't get the translation. It's like, oh, what did they say? What are they, you know? So it it it's it's um it was a very uh fun thing to do to work with all three languages. Can I ask a question about that actually of everybody? Um yeah. so I found that in the beginning of my translation, and this is also my colonized brain, my colonized being, I started with the thinking already of like oh, if I write that, how then am I going to write the surtitles? Like I was already catering to the English speaking audience. And I am now, we are now kind of playing with the idea of not doing surtitles for the Tagalog version because there is an English version and there is already a Cantonese version existing. And <clears throat> I mean, my dream production, my dream like kind of tour of the show is that the three go on tour together and every night it's a different language. Um, but what are people's thoughts on that? And like, do we, because I mean, 
it would be great to have everybody there, but my show is being written for a Filipino Canadian audience. What are people's thoughts on not doing surtitles and making the audience feel uncomfortable? I mean, if I may answer as the moderator, yeah. uh, I've written a piece that had, had Spanish English in it and I provided no translation whatsoever. Um, and for me, it was a purpose. I loved it because I felt um, in writing work, like you said, you're automatically always wondering how you're gonna cater to that dominant language. Um, I, I wanted the audience to sit there and, and, and feel left out um, because for me, I used that language to reflect uh, a character's journey in that play. And so then it, it gave them an opportunity to sit and be, uh, have that feeling of not being catered to and not having everything for them um, right away and not apologizing for it. Like there was no, um, because often a question was like, well, how is everyone gonna understand this? And I was like, well, this isn't for everyone. And, and I'm writing for specific people, um, others. I think it comes down to the intent of the piece. So when I'm doing translations, I usually think through two to three lenses. The first one is what I personally call contextual translation. It doesn't, that word does not exist. I just created it because I needed a container to, to talk about that language. And what that meant was when I'm translating, I don't translate it based on the words. I translate based on the context. And that's usually from English to Mandarin. So meaning, um, so when I'm working on the piece Mother Tongue with Jasmine Chen, a lot of the stuff we talked about is this thing that you're saying in English would not make sense to a Mandarin speaker if I translate, translated it directly just based on the written language. And so what I would do is I will find something in Mandarin that references something similar. So contextually, the text is the same, but, um, but the language might be a little bit different. So for example, it might in English, it might say deep within my skin, in Mandarin, it might say carved in my bone. It's not directly similar linguistically, but contextually is the same. And um, I do that for that form because my idea, which is the first lens, is that I'm translating for the spectator. Meaning if I'm translating for a Mandarin speaker who does not read English, they would not know the English culture as well anyways. So my job is to translate it so you understand the story, but it also connects you to your cultural context. So that's the first lens. The second one um, is usually when I'm working with Mandarin and then having to translate it to English, which then it's more about writing in Mandarin first. So the idea comes first. And then the English translation is there to invite you to understand my culture. So I, my thought process is still, um, I'm translating in English, but really it's not about killing the cultural contexts of Mandarin, but rather here are some things that you can learn about the Mandarin culture through this piece because of the language. And here is how I can help you digest it using your language. But again, it's about the, it's about the base, it's about the, the mother tongue that comes first. So thinking about, I don't think about surtitles until I'm finished the piece. So it's not about like, oh, how do I present it to a multilingual um, audience? But rather, this is my work. And now this is a resource for you to 
observe into this world. And then the last one is sort of the trickier one for me is um, the third line is also dealing with the historical context of the languages. And that usually comes up, especially in like contemporary language. So for example, translating for um, bios, a lot of the times we're putting pronouns on right now, but it, I can't really do pronouns in Mandarin because the pronoun for Mandarin ta is written, was intentionally supposed to be gender neutral. But when um, sort of the missionaries came into ancient China or historical China, they brought in he and she. So the Chinese community had to come up with a different word to use for she. So therefore, the Mandarin sort of like pronouns, like the gender binary of Mandarin pronouns was created because of westernization. But then looking back now, we don't then have a gender neutral pronoun that we can use to apply to contemporary language because historically what was already gender neutral has now sort of been destroyed. So that's sort of like the third lens of looking at historically where other clashes and then finding a happy medium that can match for both circumstances. I guess that personally, my feeling is that anything can be done, um, Carmilla, but do you, I mean, if you, if the, I'm very, sometimes I'm very down to earth in my preoccupations and I'm like, do you think your presenter would have the base basically to, to present this in front of a full house? <laughs> that would be my question. Cause I, it is, you know, creation is a, is a precarious thing for presenters. And so I guess that that, and, and I'm sure in Vancouver, the reality is very different than for us. Um, for us, I would I would imagine it would be a hard thing uh, to to do in Montreal, but it's a totally different reality than yours. So, um, so that would be my question for Carmela, <laughs> who's gone. I want to add on to. Um, I mean, if I could add something different, I feel that maybe because of how I grew up too, and maybe a lot of folks here feel the same way, but the. The idea of having surtitles and subtitles has always been, or like that being on screen or uh, on stage is not so foreign to me. I've actually always been watching, even when I was in Belgium, there was like three subtitles because exactly. Belgium has multiple languages. It's busy down there, but, but it's, it's, you know, it's all, it's just how it is. And then you kind of, it, it's not a big deal at all. So um, it's not, I feel like and we might sometimes feel like, oh, we're, ca we're catering or like we're making it more accessible. Like there, there may be that uh, feeling of like, oh, are we, is this colonization with, of, by putting subtitles or subtitles on it? Um, I never really thought that way, maybe because of my own privilege, but I also just grew up always watching subtitles and that um and there's all and there's art and subtitles too which and translation so I always appreciated even um like there are very famous people who uh create subtitles we always are like oh it was that person's translation that's why it was good like we're, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's how translation is so huge and common uh in countries that at least I lived in so to me it's not such a um it's not such a big deal, but I, 
I, I do understand why when there's a primary primary language somewhere that most of the people think that you don't need subtitles and then adding that feels like it's another thing, but it's not in the world. Yeah. One of, one of the most exciting pieces of theater I saw in my life uh, was the Roman tragedies by Ivo van Hove. And it was this Dutch company playing Shakespeare in Dutch, but with English and French subtitles at the FDI in Montreal. But the English was not Shakespeare. It was an adaptation of the play in English. And that made it so exciting because for once in my life, I could actually understand Shakespeare. Uh, but and then they were super nervous because they were they were taking it to London and they were like, who are those, you know, English people are going to think of our adaptation in English. And they actually loved it. It was simplified. There was all these flourishes that were gone and we we're, you know, straight to the point. And the, why it was so exciting was that it was also completely part of the design. You could, of course, watch a big screen with subtitles in a normal way, but you could also sit on stage and watch different screens, TVs, where you would see the actors who were filmed and there would be subtitles at the bottom of all of that. And so sometimes you could just watch the action live, decide, oh, I don't really need, I, it's Shakespeare. I kind of know the story. I don't really need to know exactly what's happening in this moment. But sometimes when you're like, oh shit, I missed that. I, then you could go back. And to me, that's not, it's, it's pot, like, it's a positive thing. It's exciting. Um, I love to see pieces in different languages that are subtitled. I, I, I like to feel that people care about <laughs> me understanding because that's also why we do theater, I feel. I mean, it's, it's for the audience. Um, but because uh, you were gone for just a little bit, Carmela, I'll just uh, uh, say that my question to you for your previous question was, um, I was just thinking of the presenters. And I say, if you, if you present a piece that's not subtitled uh, and you feel like you can fill your house with an audience, then that's wonderful. Uh, I just feel like it it would probably be uh, like something that would be hard to do, for example, here in Montreal for because uh, the Filipino community is not that numerous, you know, so um, so that was that was my only comment. Um, I also uh, just to um, to speak on the, the subtitles, I um, seeing that in like the Inuit culture is so like unknown to everyone and you know i think that the the goal of these theater pieces is to educate on you know this this so far away people that actually are in the same province you know so, so i i i think that in like in any culture that's unknown it's it is very important to have subtitles and to cater to not to cater, but to kind of, you know, help understand what's going on and and say, oh, yeah, Inuit people are like this. Like, these are, that, that's so interesting. Or this is, you know, this is how we think. This is how we are. So I think it is important to have, in some cases, to have subtitles just to, I mean, my whole, my whole artistic career is to promote Inuit culture. And its beauty and its richness and all these, um, you know, things that we don't talk about um, in Inuit culture. Because we have, you know, we hear Inuit and we think right away like the polar bear, ice fishing, hunting and the igloo. But it's so much more. It's so much more. There's so much more. And so, yeah, if 
like my 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 titles for my art shows, uh, for my exhibitions, I always translate it because I want them to know what this word means and I want them to be able to, you know, understand what this word means. And, you know, theater theater is not different. I want them to understand what Hanoi means and, you know, maybe they'll be able to use it. One, uh, not too long ago, uh, two years ago, I went to this corner store and this and this uh, young guy, like very, like very young, 23, he looked at me and goes, oh, your markings are beautiful. And I said, oh, thank you. And he says, what community are you from? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm from Kudrak, you know. He goes, oh, your markings are beautiful. And he says, in Montreal. And, I, and that was so nice. He says, have a good night in my language. And I was like, what? In 13 years, that had never happened to me. I'm always like the, 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 the one who who speaks Inuktitut only in all of my, you know, in in all of Montreal. I feel like I'm alone, even though I'm not. We have, we're like about 300 Inuit, but this random Quebecois 23s, like your markings are beautiful. you know. I was like, wow, that's so nice. So, yeah, the subtitles are super important. Hopefully, we'll be able to get to know the language a little more. I don't know, just to make it not so foreign, <laughs> not so different, you know, to, for it to be so common, that'd be awesome. I think just one more thing to tag on. I think it comes just to hunker back to what Camilla was saying in terms of like subtitles over looming the creative process. I, I um, there, I think there's a happy medium in this place of like welcoming them to learn, but also standing your ground. And that for me, that conversation came along specifically when we we're fighting, me and my collaborators were fighting over translating name food names. So um, there's a there's a, a, a whole section of the piece in in Hymn of the Weaver Birds about making junk, which is roughly translated to like bamboo wrap sticky rice so the fight was whether to call it bamboo rice bamboo wrap sticky rice throughout the play which is obviously very hard to say or jong we like the whole play we're just like we'll keep it jong and one of the things that was brought up was if we as non-english speakers can go around learning these names for all these foods and not just in English, too, but like any other language. If I can learn to say sushi, if I can learn to say jalapeno, not jalapeno, if I can learn like these other things, then they are capable of learning our language as well. So what we can translate in English, we offer that. What we cannot, we keep it within the cultural context. You have all these other things that will help you understand the story. And what you don't understand now is your curiosity. Now is for you to go explore. So it's sort of that happy medium of like, you are following the structure, but it also gives you a goodie bag to take away once you leave the theater. I like that. Yeah. It's about like um, sharing your culture, access, but also standing your ground of representing who you are. And um Oh, I had something else. Um, also, like, I think in translation, inherently, there are things that non, non-speakers of that language will miss anyway. Like, there are just so many things that don't translate, right? Like, I think Mayumi, you were talking about this, like, there are just so many, like, cultural things that, yes, I can 
put it in a put it into a sentence, but you don't actually it doesn't land in you that your that audience is going to inherently miss on miss out on some things. Um, and yeah, I like that idea of like having a goodie bag for them to take away and learn more about if they're curious. Thanks. Yeah, there's actually there's also similarities as well. There and the the playwright Hideki Noda, he's famous for doing wordplay and every single thing that he does. And there is a scene in Red Demon where uh, the the Red Demon who speaks English goes like, "Oh God!" And then everybody, and then the other character who is Japanese at the same time he goes, "Oh God!" So it sounds similar. So then, like, wait, what did you say? Oh God! Oh, 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 oh my God! And then, and then they realize that it's actually the same meaning. So then they're like, they get really excited because this similar sound is a similar meaning, and they kind of celebrate each other. Like this is the first time we have linked. And those there are little moments like that that like you you just need to experience it rather than um, sometimes not even having the subtitles helps sometimes because as an audience, they're also thinking like, but like, that sounded really similar. <laughs> but actually that's the point. So there's also miracles like that too. I think it, communication is a tricky thing. You know, I, I'm thinking about the plays that I, I've seen in, in languages that I didn't understand without subtitles. And um, I saw the three sisters in German, but that was the three sisters. So I, I know the story. Uh, so, you know, I was there mostly to see, oh, how did he direct that? And the, the visual choices and the aesthetic choices. And so I was really there for a sensorial experience. Um, and that worked, that kept my attention. Then when I was in Japan and I saw Kabuki, of course, I didn't understand a word, but it was such an experience in itself that it's fascinating. I'm thinking if I saw way, a play. neither do we. <laughs> Even the Japanese oh, okay. people are watching, thinking like oh, they need subtitles too because it's old <laughs> Japanese, and they're like, uh, "Okay, ah, ah. <laughs> like it's so, <laughs> we're experiencing together." Oh, okay, because I was, uh, I was, it was so fascinating to see the audience in those shows, how riled up they get, and they root for characters, and they're very vocal. It's really amazing, but that kept my attention going, of course. But I'm thinking if I saw a play that was, let's say, more minimalist or more naturalistic, and I couldn't understand a word, could my attention, uh, could I remain attentive to it? And uh, I don't have the answers. That. That makes me think about something I'm uh, working on right now. And maybe because I'm so early in my journey as in working with two languages. Um, but I am intentionally leaving uh, both languages in. I said the story is like this character goes back to Taiwan, not having spoken Mandarin in a while. Now is trying to speak Mandarin to his grandparents, because that's the only language the grandparents speak and not English. But then when we see it, let's say the monologue is in English or in, in, in the characters like nostalgic or this guilt trip, fantastical moment is in English, but it's just through their thinking in English. So I am trying to write in both languages at the same time. And also encountering this thing that Carmela you're mentioning, where it's like, okay, now I'm writing Chinese what is my English subtitle? And then I'm writing English, what is my Chinese subtitles? And um, 
And I don't know whether I just need to, um, and I think this comes a bit of the, that diasporic like loss of language guilt creeps in where at one point I was, I, I was thinking maybe I should just make it, make the whole thing in Mandarin. Uh, maybe like my, you know, my, my colonized mind is trying to justify or trying to like look after those interspeaking folks so that I leave some English in the play. But then I realized, no, I think that's inherent like that is part of the core thing is the struggle, like trying to negotiate between two languages. And so um, thinking about the audience, like who do I want to come see the show? I, I think I want it to be just diasporic. And I'm sure like when we make these words for the most part, we want like a diasporic audience. It doesn't have to be like Taiwanese Canadians that come to see the show. We want other immigrants to be able to come see it and get something out of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just encountering this like challenge for myself where I'm trying to write, write in both languages. Um, and that's my, the question I pose also because right now as I write, I, because I'm bad in both languages, I am just writing in whatever language that makes sense to me. Like I know this thing will be Mandarin at some point. English is much easier, easier for me to write right now. I'm gonna write it in English first and then I'll figure it out later. Um, I'm curious about other folks. Do you, what language do you think? And like, are you able to think in both languages and write in both languages? Or how do you negotiate between that initial writing process and then getting down onto the page? Yeah, just curious. Yeah, I think um, in Jasmine's Double Speak, um, we briefly talked about this, but um, <laughs> I like to make up words. I feel like it's really silly, but. I just need symbols, but we call it language bodies, which is that um, when you speak a different language, I personally feel like physically and mentally completely different. Like me, Johnny Wu, who speaks English and me, Johnny Wu, who speaks Mandarin and me, Johnny Wu, who speaks Taiwanese are three completely different people. And so there's a few things I want to say. I think the first one is to hunker back to what you're saying, I think the difference between um, what Camilla is creating and what you are creating from what I'm hearing is Camilla is creating a character that is rooted in Tagalog, whereas you are creating a character that is rooted in English and Mandarin. And I think there's this, there's this idea, especially as a diasporic, um, someone who grew up in a diaspora of either or, like either Mandarin either English, but I really like the concept of the third culture, whereas I'm not this culture, I'm not this culture, but actually I'm a third culture, which is the blend of both. And when you're writing, because I'm writing in four languages, because I'm writing Mandarin, English, Taiwanese, and then one of two of the actors are Cantonese. So I'm translating what they're saying. So I'm writing in Mandarin, but when they perform it, they say it in Cantonese. Um, and what I realized is, you're tracking, it's almost like a different character, right? So in terms of when I'm writing a character that speaks to a language, who they are in the English context and how they react in English and who they are when they speak Mandarin, I'm treating it almost like two different characters and that it is, it's almost like a play within a play that they have this context with this greater world, but they also have a context within themselves. Right, similar to what you're doing, um, a lot of the characters that we have in our play, when they speak in their mother tongue, is always with someone they know 
um, for a long time. So it's either a sister, a mother, or grandmother. So that is a different relationship, just like we have different relationships when we speak with those type of people in our real life versus when we speak English. Like when I speak with my Yumi, I'm very different than when I speak with my mother. Um, and so it's, it's tracking your thought and also realizing that you are, you're, you're the dichotomy of the, the language body that you are having as an artist is also existing in this character who is also speaking both. So it's, it, it doesn't have to conflict, um, but rather just think about what, what, why are they speaking Mandarin in that scene and why are they speaking English in that scene? And again, just throw away the subtitle looming thing. Like, again, I always create first and then think of the subtitle later because the subtitle is not part of the creation process, right? I'm building a house. I'm not going to worry about like, oh, I have to put a door here. So then I have to change the whole configuration of the house so I can put the door there. No, the door exists when it exists. Like it's, it's about the house first and then the windows and the doors sort of like come into play. Yeah. I want to challenge that thought because I think if you, you can create with subtitles in, in, in the beginning, if the subtitles are integrated as the character and if you're using yeah. them in your design to maybe go beyond simply just providing translation, but elevating things or other, th like, you know what I mean? So, and it is because, yes. yeah, I, I just, I want to challenge that as, so, you know, not a panel where everyone agrees. On <laughs> True. <laughs> yes. But I think um, if you're going that route, it's, it's about how it integrates into it rather than like, again, the little, you know, the little things sitting on your, on your shoulder telling you, well, you can't use this word in your Mandarin translation because it doesn't translate well into English, et cetera. Right now I'm creating a play um, called Cyclorama that is both in French and English. And it's a co-production between an Anglophone theater and a Francophone theater. And it's about the history of theater in Montreal, but with the angles of the two solitudes, what we call the two solitudes, which are the French and English. And so, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a big challenge because the history of those languages is so political that then what do you do? Because you're in two theaters. And because uh, we start the play in one theater, then people take a bus and then we finish at, at the other theater. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I have to really kind of respect people's uh, sensitivities. And I know that in the first theater, I'm going to be speaking to a bunch of elderly people who only speak English and don't speak French, even though they've lived in Montreal their whole lives. And at the second theater, there will be also a small part of the population of the the members that will not speak English. And so like my, I thought about that when I, when I started writing, because uh, I, if I go for too long in one language, there's people I'm going to be losing unless I really want to be translating every single thing. But sometimes it, it would be hell because, you know, there will be times where we're going to speak extremely fast in the play because there's kind of an improvisational uh, aspect to the play. So then what I tried to do is to have longer monologues that would always go from one language to the next and where I repeat some of the information and I recontextualize so I wouldn't have to translate it all and to subtitle it all, subtitle it all, because uh, it will just be too heavy to read. And so that was a strategy. We'll have to test it, um, you know, 
to see if it works, but I, I fingers crossed it, it will. And then, you know, what was it, what was really interesting about what you were saying, Johnny, and, and writing and connecting to the different personas, um, uh, we were improvising with one of the actors in the play who was originally from Lebanon, but who arrived in Canada at five. Um, and then who left Montreal to go work in English at Stratford. So very interesting kind of parcours. And so he was improvising and telling his life story. And when he was uh, improvising and talking about his childhood, he spoke with a French from France accent, because that's how they speak in Lebanon. And then he talks about when he arrived in Canada and, and then his accent shifted in the improv, but he didn't recognize, you know, he didn't realize that. And then he started talking about going to Dawson College and then to Stratford and he switched to English, but in a very natural way, because of course that's where his brain went. And I, I, we kept it as is in the show because it was just such a beautiful demonstration of how, how your brain works and how uh, your relationship to memory and language is just so, so strong and so tied together. And uh, a demonstration of, yeah, the different personas that you carry through these through these different languages and um it was fascinating and then in the in the second bit of the show which is in the bus we decided to make the choice of because of course we can't have subtitles there so we're gonna print stuff physically on paper <laughs> so some of the stuff will be you know there's going to be images some of the text will be translated but all printed and people can can decide to follow or not, can just listen, because most of the people will be bilingual. So, uh, so yeah, but it's a, it's, it's a puzzle. It's a, it's a true, it's a, it's an interesting challenge. I, you know, I, I love to do that kind of stuff. Sounds like such a cool show. I want to see the show. Um, Come. <laughs> uh, when we can, when we can, yes. Um, I was going to say that sometimes when I am stuck on something, I will, write it out in the way like Carmela would say it not the character would say it and usually it's just it is kind of in Taglish Tagalog English but with like an accent do you know what I mean like so like when I read it back to myself it's it's not it's like not the way I, I would speak English it'd be kind of like a little bit more affected and like has a little bit of an accent like you know so it's not the way I speak but I was like I, I realized that in the process that I would just, as a placeholder that I would, I would write. Yeah. Kind of in English, but as I'm writing it, I'm thinking in an accent, which is kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> I think it also was the context too, right? There's certain things that you just don't understand, or it's hard to grasp in a, in a different language. Um, I'm thinking totally not Mandarin related, but like I've recently been really obsessed with a Japanese word called kuchisabishi. And it's this idea of like eating because your mouth is lonely. And like that <laughs> concept doesn't translate if I'm if I'm writing about this idea or like writing about this character that's just eating through this whole scene, not because they're hungry, not, but they're just simply bored, which I do a lot like then my brain would go to Mandarin or something more closer to Japanese than I would say in English, right? Um, and similarly, like, I don't, I don't say delicious in Mandarin. I don't, it's, it's interesting that because Taiwan has such a strong Japanese influence, I actually say oishi a lot when I speak at home. And, and it's just, so contextually, 
like that language captures what I want to express the most, even though, yes, I can say mandar or I can say delicious. But emotionally, like if it's something's really good, it has to be oishi because that's the only thing that can capture that emotional container. So it really also comes down to like where it like where that character is emotionally or psychologically for you to choose that language that fits it the most. Um, that makes me think about something. This is like slightly unrelated, but just in that the language, um, it languages are inherently political, um, and when we translate these languages, the presence of them have a often political context. Um, for example, like speaking Japanese to an elder uh, Taiwanese um, characters, uh, they will have very different perceptions about Japanese, speaking Japanese language in the, in the household uh, because of Taiwan's history. Um, and even just the fact of hearing, and I think this is like back to the very first question in, in like testing people in town and how, how do we find actors to be able to read these role. Um, there's a lot of Mandarin speaking actors in town that I know of, but not many Taiwanese Mandarin speaking actors. And the way they say it is so different. And I know like in all different languages, different regions speak the same language, but dialects different. Just the way they see a language is so different. And sometimes those presence, those bodies on stage um, are political. Um, and, and yeah, and even just, you know, like here's a switch between Taiwanese and Mandarin. Uh, in the same line, and how do we thinking about translating into English? Is how how do we capture that they're switching between two languages? Um, and sometimes that just like it, it maybe just can't happen. Um, but yeah, it just makes me think about the the politics of of language and dialect spoken, and how uh, it's hard to capture that in translation. Well, I think it comes back again to character and in the story you're trying to tell, right? Like, I wish Derek was here because he would know this reference. But um, there's a difference between contemporary Cantonese speakers who speaks in Cantonese slang, who also uses a lot of English and a lot of Mandarin, right? Like, and then there's a local Cantonese speaker who would speak purely in Cantonese. And then there's a type of Cantonese speakers who refuse to speak Cantonese but tries to speak Mandarin with a Cantonese accent, but accidentally add Cantonese things into it. So similarly to what you're saying of these, um, like in Taiwan as well, right? Like there is, even within Taiwan, let's not even talk about the, the Taiwan Chinese accent thing. Even within Taiwan, there's people who speak Taiwanese, there's people who speak Mandarin with a Taiwanese accent, there's people who speak Mandarin with a Taiwanese accent with Japanese characters uh, or Japanese words in it. And there's people who speak Taiwanese but has sort of a, a fake Chinese accent, right? So that already in itself, how they speak already helps you create some sort of character container. I think it's always, it, it's people often forget that language, yes, is political, but it's also cultural. It's also social. It's not, it's not just um, used for communication. Yes, it is. It is what we say. So we understand each other but it's actually also effective of our roots, right? Like how the, within the language, it already shows our POV, right? Certain words in Japanese only exist in Japanese because that's the Japanese culture. Certain words only exist in Mandarin or certain words are only used in different ways in Mandarin is because it shows a culture. For example, 
um, in Taiwan, we will say dao di, which is local. But in China, they will say di dao. It's the same word, but it's flipped. So how you use it already sets up the type of character you're creating and then the overall given circumstances they're in. So in terms of what you're saying about switching between languages within one character, it's, it comes down to who is the character. And, um, and I think this idea of language needing to be clear for story to be clear is also a very um, Western and white construct because the West relies a lot on language where I, where I, my experience is that non-white or Caucasian cultures relate, use language and body a lot more. So if you think about going traveling somewhere and you don't really speak the language or you speak only a little bit of language, you use your body to speak, right? Like when I went to Japan, I don't speak Japanese. I know like two words. So I'll just, I would say the thing and then perform the action and then someone will understand. Right. So in terms of the same thing with the language, if your character is speaking in switching between language and embodying the language and moving with the quality of someone that will speak in a way that switches between language, I'm, I find that that narrative actually still sits and translate, even if the audience doesn't completely get what is being said, but at least they get the context of what is being said. So I think communication is, yes, language is part of it, but it's not solely dependent on it. So it's really more about the content of what you're creating rather than the container, which is the language, the form, the style, whatever, whatever. Jenny, that's really uh, interesting. And you, you brought us something earlier about like the roots of where we are from and <clears throat> thinking about all of our backgrounds and, and the differences in that. This is a bit of a segue into other things, but it is based on this. Um, but I, I look at I look at us here, and uh, all of us have a different journey to our languages and how we are to that. And we speak of mother tongues and all those things. And I look at uh, Howard and Carmela and Nancy. I I look at you, and I, what I ask is listening to your pieces and 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 kind of knowing Pineapple Bun Howard especially, um, using your art as like a reclamation of your language, of being able to reclaim something that has been lost to you either through displacement or through moving. Whereas I feel like Johnny, uh, Laurence and um, Mayumi, you have a closer connection to that mother tongue because you have had a longer tie to it or have experience of being where your language is, your mother tongue is the dominant thing. Um, and can maybe the three of you, Howard, uh, Carmela and Nancy, speaking about that, using your art as reclamation of language and, and, and coming to that later in life. Go ahead, Howard. Yeah, it took me a long time to be able to start writing this because um, there was first the, 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 the shame of not being able to say it or, or write it well enough to be able to write, to begin writing something. Um, and and I spoke Mandarin at home, but only with my mom. Um, and th I just uh, through high school, I I tried to refuse to speak it. You know, in the process of like being you know being assimilated and like trying to really want to learn English, right? And like going to drama classes, and I wanted to go to theater school. I have to like, and and this is I will say this is my inherent my inherent thing to like try to put that away so I can try to learn one language English more proficiently um and so speech like conversationally is easy but but just to cross that step of like creating something that language was a very hard step 
um, to now at this point, as I'm still writing, I like, I, I, the first draft, the challenge to myself in writing the first draft of this play as a parameter is I want to write it all in Chinese first, all the dialogues. Um, and I knew that first draft wasn't for any eyes, any other eyes to read, knowing that it's going to be really, really terrible <laughs> Mandarin. But I think that was a process of me rediscovering um, what the language brings up in my body, because the language I still have is kind of stuck in the 12 years old me when I graduated grade six in Taiwan. And so where that language lives in my body is stuck in that time. So I wanted to try to do that first and see what comes up. And I will say that was helpful because the things that come up already just through trying to type Mandarin, like with the English keyboard without the purple mofo on the thing, trying to remember how my fingers work, typing the, the, the thing uh, already brings up a lot um, of story inherently without me trying to form a story, a story kind of emerged just through me reclaiming it. Um, and now kind of the story is, fill, is framed around this character's uh, uh, the, 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 the talk between nostalgia and the diasporic guilt that comes in is for me such a fine line between nostalgia and guilt. Um, so it, it's, been, uh, it's been really uh, healing for me and revealing to know how much I still need to learn. And it's interesting because this month, as I'm writing this play, I've moved back to my mom's again. And so the first few days of the new year, I've been unpacking and trying to throw a lot of things in the drawer. And I hoard a lot of things. And these are all things I kept either from my first few years in Canada or things I brought over from Taiwan. And I found this workbook in, um, in Chinese characters. Um, and it's like there in columns and there's a single character and you would you write it like 10, 15 times to know how the strokes word, to know like how each part of the word uh, lives on a little grid box. And so it's kind of a serendipitous thing where I take it out. And now every night before I go on my computer to write the script, I take out the workbook and I try to practice writing the language by hand with my pencil. Um, and I don't know how much it actually feeds into. I, I think it's just me part framing that process of like, okay, this research for me writing this play is framed around reclaiming the language. So let me try to bring back all the muscle memory, all the, all the memory I have in my head to uh, around this language to see what comes up. And it's been really fruitful so far, but still, I think I still have a long way to go in, in rediscovering that. Thanks, Howard. Yeah, I I feel like I'm sort of on the same, same boat. I moved when I was seven and um, my parents insisted on um, speaking Tagalog at home, but I didn't actually, I didn't have a lot of Filipino friends growing up even though I lived in Vancouver, I, I just didn't have uh, a lot of Filipino kids in my class or, or when I did, they didn't speak uh, Tagalog either. And, you know, I, I was the kid who, um, when I, when I would visit the Philippines, my cousins would all just be like, don't, don't say anything in Tagalog because you have an accent and people will charge us more. Like, you know, it's, they just wanted me to just be quiet and not even try speaking the language. Um, so, and like, truthfully, this, this project probably wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have taken it on, uh, and other than the fact that Giovanni really challenged me to it. And, you know, it, it's such a, it's such a gift. And I think that's why it is taking me a little bit longer to work on it because it is me working, working through 
a little bit of that, a little bit of like trauma and a little bit of um, just cultural um, um, cultural and language reclamation and also really understanding the Filipino culture because um, much uh, much like Howard, I um, my initial, actually no, different from Howard, I think you were doing it in your, the way you, uh, how you spoke la- the language. I did my initial translation in full Tagalog that, um, again, that like deep Tagalog that you'd only hear at church maybe in the Philippines or like, you know, like none of my relatives anyway would speak that way. Um, and so, yeah, it was constantly like Googling every word and like, oh yeah, I don't even, I haven't heard that word in so, so, so long. It would, it would only be in like fables and things like that. So then I wrote that version. And um, later on, when I started working with Nina, she read it and she was like, I mean, yes, it's beautiful. And you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's nice because it's nice to hear like Tagalog, but no one would understand it. So even as a culture, even at like my people are not with me on this. My people would not understand it. So I had to bring it back a little bit. And so I have to, I I have to meet that somewhere in the middle where seven-year-old, like Carmela's seven-year-old Tagalog is working with what I learned in that initial version and now marrying those two so that it is still a translation slash adaptation. Um, but, but I'm still honoring the language and the culture. And so, um, and so that's what I'm kind of working towards, right. Working with right now of like, when is it okay that she slips into, um, more, more taglish? Um, when is it okay that she has a lot of memories about the Philippines? So then this should all be in Tagalog, um, you know, so it's it is a bit of a dance with the translation. Laurence, j'ai pas tout à fait compris la question. Euh, ben c'est pour toi dans le fond qu'est-ce que qu'est-ce que ça veut dire de d'avoir un processus où est-ce que t'es en, tu réclames dans le fond le, le droit de parler ta langue, une langue que t'avais perdue. T'en as déjà parlé un peu tantôt là. Je sais pas si tu veux ajouter quelque chose là-dessus. Euh, je sais pas. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, because I think that Nancy already kind of answered the question earlier, so she doesn't really know what to add to what no, she said. It's just, it's just um, you know, it, in the theater piece, if we're, if I'm talking specifically in the theater piece, I I struggle with uh, um, kind of the fear of like saying things wrong still, you know, or with um, what we call kutak which is uh, like talking uh, uh, brokenly. I don't know how, to, how else to translate it, but um, I mean, I'm 35 now. I, 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 I did a lot of, uh, since I was 18, you know, uh, I've reclaimed a lot of my language, but what's, what's unfortunate about the Inuit language is that it's so uh, land-based it's not land-based language. So there's a lot of words that I don't know that I don't need to know because I, I don't live there. And I don't like the, the hunting and sewing and like these, these. Uh, it's not a language that kind of moved forward. Like we don't have words for cell phone. We don't have, like there's a lot of words that are missing in our vocabulary that, that kind of describe, you know, modern 
modern uh, things. So it's, uh, I mean, I still have, I still have an enormous amount to learn, but uh, in the context where I am right now, I just, it's not something that I could, I could, um, there's a book I'm gonna, it's not something that I, I, it's so complicated to explain. I don't, I don't know how to explain this. And, that, just, and that's understandable. Like the language. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's such a, it's a, it's a land-based language and being in, being in, you know, the South, we don't have words for bus or we don't have words for Metro. We don't have words for like a lot of things that I, you know, that I, that even on stage, like there's a lot of words that we kind of not invented, but it's more, we describe. So we're describing this thing like computer, like it's computer is like, resembles of a brain mm -hmm. you know is brain and resemble of a brain so when i mean it's um i mean i'm proud of what i'm able to speak and i'm very much able to understand and be, seeing that you know the language is very descriptive listening to something like listen, hearing a word and if i don't know what the word means if i really take the time to to listen to the word as it's because it's very descriptive, I can understand what what it is, right? But um, what I find, you know, more more important is to speak of these, not so much of the language, but to speak of cultural elements that you know people don't pay attention to, like the tattooing, the beading, you know, these these like these these ways of life that we have that people kind of tend to not really pay attention to, if that makes sense. And if I may add something, something, because you were talking about Johnny, um, you know, the, the importance of language in certain cultures and then in Inuktitut, silence is also a big part of the culture. Um, yeah, we're going to people who speak a lot. <laughs> yeah, not, so... I mean, it's so it's funny because like when I have a, like a friend come over who's Inuk, and and what you were saying, uh, I think it's, it's Johnny. You're a different person when you speak French, when you speak English, and when you I, I'm I I without you having to say any more, I completely understood you. Like I had a friend, you know, come over, and and I feel like because she's French, we have to speak all the time, and she's visiting my house, and I'm. Even though we're talking, we're discussing in French and talking about, I don't know, ideas and our week and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll have like an Inuk friend come over and then she'll just be on my couch and I won't speak to her for the whole four hours that she's there. <laughs> and then it's just like, I'm beating, listening to music and she's in my living room. And then she comes and she says, I made some food. Are you hungry? Like in my house. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Thanks for making me lunch in my house. Like, I, it's just so very different. And I totally understand what you what you mean. I, it's it's so real. And I, I think that's what we're trying to portray. And like in Alabi, there's like moments where me and Olivia, like the two um, characters on stage, we we just sit there. We don't even say anything. You know, there's a scene where I ask her like. I'm not feeling well. I'm going to go lie down. Is it okay if I, you know, shut off this light? Can I go lie down? And, you know, it's, I don't think that 
that's something that ever happens. Like, I don't know if I could go to my French speaker friends and say, hey, I'm not feeling well. Can I go lie down in your house? <laughs> you know, it's not something that it's so much more formal. I don't know. And that I, I think that's really nice of like Anapi is that we we kind of show this informal way of being and being quiet and just chilling, you know. I wanna add to that. Um I write right and right now right now I'm uh writing I have a screenplay that's written in English, but majority is gonna be translated into Japanese. But originally I, I wrote in English because for funding stuff, I mean, I have to write in English to apply it and all, but I can't wait for, I'm assuming that when I translate into English, a lot of the dialogue is gonna turn into silent moments. And I'm, I'm anticipating that and which will, Will it be longer or shorter? I don't know. But it feels like whenever I read it in English, it makes all sense. But then if in my head, when I'm translating to Japanese, I feel like, oh, I feel like I'm explaining or talking too much about whether I'm what I'm thinking about what what is happening, because in, I, I find that in English, we articulate a lot. But um, in certain cultures and different languages, the way we express ourselves is very different. And the way we uh, uh, avoid conflict, or the way we uh, face conflict is also very different. So I feel as an actor myself, even when, uh, when, even if it's completely English audition, sometimes when I'm struggling, I would translate it into all Japanese and see what kind of different filter that'll add. And then when I do it in English, there's like a, a different kind of nuance that I can possibly add. And I feel like that's like my, my secret weapon. So when I write, when I retranslate it into, not retranslate, when I translate it into Japanese, I'll, that the translate, the nuance filter will kind of like tone down all the things that is right now feeling more North American. And uh, I'm really excited for that moment because um, that'll be an, an aha moment as a writer realizing that oh, right, that's when it's different. And then just making it work so that um, it's more, most, most true, most, most authentic. And it will, I think when you hone it down to that, like what is true in the moment, then no matter what language it is, it'll always be universal. And I think that's what I keep, need, need, I keep needing to remind myself that that's where I need to go to instead of trying to assimilate too much because we were so accustomed to assimilating to a certain language or an attitude or expression. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, there is one example that I constantly give to people that I find really interesting is at the end of a video game called Final Fantasy. In the English version, the main character says, I love you. In the Japanese version, she says, Ariato. But then if you were to translate Ariato into English, it's actually thank you. Whereas if you were to translate I love you into Japanese, it would be aishiteru. But the conversation with that is a Japanese person or authentically would not say it that forwardly in that context. But within that, I, within that thank you for Japanese people encompasses all that love that they want to say to this person. Whereas in English, if someone's like leaving and you're like, 
thank you. It doesn't work contextually. But like, so it's that interesting thing of these languages saying the same thing, but using these different words that um, that is really interesting. And, and also, again, back to hunkering always back to this purpose and translation is to introduce um, the, the host language or the mother tongue to the other person, right? So it, it's really about like, what does this language, what, what can this language teach you about the culture that this language is rep representing as a symbol? I was just uh, going to say, um, after hearing you, Mayumi, that it reminded me of a, a songwriter. I can't remember the name, but I remember him saying that we, whenever he wrote a song, he wrote in his mother tongue and then translated it to his second tongue and his third and then retranslated it to his mother tongue. Um, and he, he felt like after all these translations, he finally went like got to the core of what he wanted to say. And I thought that's, I thought that was pretty interesting. Amazing. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And I love the work <laughs> you're all doing. Um, and thank you for your time to sit with today. Uh, this excites me because I hope we can continue these conversations as we come across each other um, when we can meet again and gather and continue talking about uh, multilingual work and the processes of how each of us approach it because our backgrounds, who we are, our experiences all affect that dramaturgy that go into it, um, affect how we place those pieces of the puzzle of language together on stage. Uh, and I'm excited to see all of the projects uh, that we've never spoken about uh, today. I wanna thank you for the time. We've come to the end of our time together, um, but hopefully it won't be the last time. I wanna thank the push for allowing us to even get together and uh, all of that. So with that, thank you everyone. Thank you. Thank you. We should all say it in our own language. Salamat. I was going to say, <laughs> Salamat. <laughs> Merci. Merci. Gracias. That was a good talk. I loved it. Thanks, everyone, for sharing. <laughs>